Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 5. We are reading verses 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we ask for your help. We need your Spirit's guidance to reveal to us your light and your truth and to lead us in the way of application. We ask that you would speak now, for your servants are here to listen. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. They are known as the Improvised Shakespeare Company. It's a remarkable concept out of Chicago. The company performs one-act shows without any advance planning. The way it works is that the company receives a title from the crowd who is sitting before them, and then they spontaneously, in an improvisational mode, then do their one-act play. It is done complete with these and thous in Elizabethan English, iambic pentameter, rhyming couplets, soliloquies, and tragic heroes. It has it all. But don't be fooled. Simply because there was no planning does not mean that there was no preparation. The improvised Shakespeare company prepares. Every week they gather, the actors gather to read Shakespeare. They practice their Elizabethan vocabulary. They build up one another's reserves. They actually bring in experts on Shakespeare to teach and instruct them about all of Shakespeare's plays. They're seeking to know the mind of Shakespeare. They want to know how he wrote and what he valued, how he turned phrases, and what it means to be inside of his mind. 
because then they are fit to perform these one-act plays, working out the details of what it means to be in concert with that on the stage. And as Christians, it's important for us to recognize parallel here. Because in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, what we learned is that God in Jesus has revealed His will, His will to unite all things in heaven and on earth, making them one. This was a mystery that was obscure in ages past, but now in the fullness of time, God has made His plan clear. And then in our passage this morning, we read something else about the will of God. It says this, In verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And also in verse verse 7, we're told that therefore not to associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That we have this big canvas of God's will, what He is doing in the cosmos to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And then we are instructed to become discerning, to discern what it is to please the Lord, to discern what it is to walk in His will, that we are to get to know that. And friends, it's very similar to the improvised Shakespeare company, that God gives us guidelines. He gives us ethical principles to live by. And then we are to work those out in the day-to-day minutiae in which we live. This is what it means to develop discernment. How do these commands apply inside of our lives and inside of our own culture? And so the pressing question as we come to Ephesians 5, and you heard a load of imperative verbs this morning, and this is not light stuff. There is heavy material here. But after hearing the grace of God announced for nearly four chapters, now Paul is putting the purchase of God upon us. What is his claim upon our lives? And so what does it mean for us to live as God's newly created people? This is what Paul is now developing for us. And there's three things that I would like to share this morning to try to summarize this material. But the first is this, is that our way of life as new creatures is empowered by grace. And that when we talk about obedience here in Ephesians 5, is that we do not get away from the grace of God. We saw this last week in Ephesians 4 and verses 17 through 24, that Paul spoke of the old man now being dead and that we've been raised to walk as new. That the old is definitively gone and we've been raised to new life. And now we are in the process of being renewed. And he says something very similar in chapter 5 in verses 7 and 8. He says, therefore, do not associate with them. What he's meaning there is do not partner with the evil deeds of those who do not share your faith. Do not be joined with those evil actions. For at one time you were darkness. That was your former manner of life prior to your conversion. You were dark. But now... You are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. And do you see this? This is the same logic that we heard last week. You are new, therefore, walk in newness. You are light, therefore, walk as children of light. That Paul is explaining to us here, and he's at pains to 
drive this home into our lives is that God's grace assigns us a status. And then He welcomes us to live into and walk in that new status that it would be fulfilled in us. Sixteen years ago, Melissa Timms and Charles Colson stood in front of a congregation of many witnesses and took vows to one another. And that day, Randy Pope, my wife's pastor growing up, announced that we were husband and wife, that we were now one flesh. There was something true about that 16 years ago, but was there something lacking? Absolutely. I was a horrible husband the first year. I'm still bad, I'm sure, but it was a tragedy. (laughs) You know, I mean, this whole idea of oneness, of being selfless, of living for the other person completely, yes, it had been declared that we were one flesh, that we were husband and wife, set aside to serve one another sacrificially, but the reality was not there. I was to learn a great deal, and I continue to learn a great deal. And I'm sure I will continue to learn a great deal as I learn what it is to live into this declaration that's been made about me and my wife. And friends, this is the same way that the grace of God works for us. We are declared that we are light. He says that you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. That we are to walk then in keeping with the realities that God is working out in us. St. Augustine, as he was on the eve of his conversion, was dealing with his own uh, moral corruption and trying to ask and seek to understand how he would ever be free from his sins. And he makes this comment that there would be no virtue without a miracle. He knew that about himself. And friends, we all feel the weight of it, that we know our own thoughts, we know our words, we know our deeds. We know our hearts and we know their corruption. And that we read these commands and without a miracle of grace at work in us, we know that we cannot walk this way. But friends, if you are in Christ, God has given you the grace to now walk in this way. It will not be so perfectly, but we will walk in the general guidelines of this way. And He's given you every bit of empowerment that you need to enable you to take up this newly created life free from the old man and the old way of sin. So our way of life as new creatures is empowered by grace. The second thing that we see here, though, is that our way of life as new creatures is distinguished by love. If you were to read some ancient moralist, you could find some similar vice and virtue list amongst the Greek philosophers. It's not that these things characterized Uh, Roman society at that time, but you could find some educated intellectuals talking about a life well-lived, and you would find some very similar virtues. There is one factor that distinguishes those conversations, though. In the Greek philosophers, you would find a list of virtues, and then in the Christian Bible, you find those same list of virtues, but you find something added to it. And what is added is the way of love. Look what Paul says in chapter 5 and 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
that this is the way of the Christian life. It is the way of love that Jesus is the pattern that in sacrificially giving himself to the church and laying down his life, this is the way that we are now to walk with one another. This is our way in the world. That as Jesus gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, we are to give up ourselves to one another. And so the largest question becomes, what exactly does that mean? I had a friend tell me the other week, he said, Chuck, I understand what it means for me. I understand the implications of the love commandment when it comes to my relationship with my wife. I don't always walk in the fulfillment of it, but I understand it. And then he said, but it's much more difficult for me to discern all of my responsibilities before God when it comes to loving my fellow brothers and sisters in the city around me. And friends, this is the most important thing for us to be discussing. That all of Christian obedience gets summed up in this command to love and that we are to love as Christ loves the church. And so to answer God's claim, I think what our responsibility is is to always ask and answer this question. What does the love of the gospel require of me in this moment as I meet this person's need? You won't always get the same answer because you have many different needs in front of you. But it will be seeking to answer the question, what does love require of me in this moment? Paul applies this in two main directions in the passage. The first is actually reaching back to verses 25 through 32. And when he speaks of love there, he talks about seeking the good of your neighbor. You'll find that there are several uh, different instructions given. And Paul states something positively, then he states something negatively, and then he gives the reason. Look in verse 25 as an example. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. And so put away falsehood, speak the truth, and then he gives the reason, for we are members one of another. And so this is the love command, that we are to be concerned for one another because we are members, we are co-participants in the grace of God. And then he instructs us to do honest work. And why does he tell us to do honest work? Not to be lazy, to have something to share with those who are in need. A profoundly sacrificial activity of giving to those who have want. Then he tells us to guard our speech. Why does he tell us to guard our speech? To give grace to those who hear us speak. And then he says to forgive and that we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us that we are to embody the love of God that we have received from Him with one another. And this is His first approach to what it means to love. And so He can take it into all of life, into directions that may actually surprise you. But the love command works down into every relationship. It works down into every motive. It works down into every word, into all of our thoughts. It's thorough that we are to seek the good of our neighbor. Now, the second piece to this where he pursues applying the love command is he is going to go straight into sexual purity. He does so in verses 3 through 5. And this is very frank talk that's sometimes misunderstood inside the church. Listen again to what he says. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, that is, someone who practices and lives in an immoral life, or impure, or who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In our own cultural moment, we are prone to think that a lot of things are coming apart at the seams. Many people feel like today, and you can find it uh, readily on, uh, on the television, that the seams of our culture are bursting, and that we are making negative progress, and we're actually regressing as a culture, and it's particularly around the sexual mores of our culture. I'll just remind you that different sexual sins that live inside of our culture, that this is not the first time the world has seen these things. I want to, you to listen to these words by N.T. Wright. He's a, a scholar, a New Testament scholar, writing about the ancient world that Paul spoke into. Listen to this carefully. He says, The world of Paul's day wasn't much different, particularly in the cities where he spent most of his time. Casual sex and all kinds of curious practices associated with it seemed to have flourished. In that world, as in ours, many people saw no need for restraint. If it seemed fun at the time, why not go ahead? Many indeed went a stage further. Some religions, particularly some of those with secret initiation ceremonies, included sexual practices among their rituals. At one end of the scale, this amounted to little more than prostitution with a vaguely religious flavor. At the other, it might be suggested that sexual experience was part of the very summit of the religious quest. And that was the world in which these early Christians inhabited. That was the darkness out of which many of them were called. That it was a sexually promiscuous world with every practice that we know today was known then as well. And friends, so it's not the first time the church has faced these challenges. And the challenge for us is not to condemn the world, but for us to be focused and in application of the love command that God has given us to be sexually pure. Because this is ultimately the root and the ground of sexual purity, is that we love others more than we love ourselves. That our sexuality is not oriented to our own self-pleasure. That our sexuality is oriented to God, receiving sex as a gift from God, and relating to it inside of His desire and design. This is what Paul says the will of God is for us, and that we are to avoid going outside of that desire and design, that that is selfish and it's self-serving, but that in giving yourself to sexual expression inside of the union of a husband and a wife, this is God's will, and it is a good thing. Now, Christians tend to be a little fussy about sex, and it's not because we think it's dirty or wrong. We tend to be fussy about it because we believe it is a sacred gift. It's a gift from God. And like all good and beautiful things, it needs boundaries in order to protect it. It's like atomic energy. You have to have very firm, concrete walls to contain it. If not, it will destroy you. And that is why the Bible gives such restrictions on sex, because it is such a good thing and a good gift for God's creation, but yet it can go way out of control. 
And so when there are restrictions in the Bible, it's not about being prudish and Victorian. It's about protecting us as creatures. God assigns boundaries in order to preserve us. And so we always must remember that sex is not about self-serving pleasure, but sex is ultimately oriented to us giving ourselves in love to someone else. And it's a fulfilling of this love command and of how we've been loved by God in Christ. Several years ago, I sat down with a young man who was frustrated about his dating life. It wasn't going well. He tended to, um, to over-communicate with young females, and he had a whole suite of communication procedures. He had Facebook and Twitter, and then some things that I don't understand like Snapchat and Instagram. And when he went on a date with a young lady, he tended to vector all of his powers in on her. And so he would begin locating Twitter accounts towards her, directing things that he thought she would find funny, and Facebook requests, and you can uh, poke people on Facebook or something. I mean, he would use all of his forces to inspire communication with young ladies, and he was confused. Um, it took us a while to sort out as to why they were not responding to him. But on the backside of that frustration, there were actually some nasty habits that had formed. He had a very deep pornography addiction. It had been running for years, and it came out of his frustration with his failures with, with women. And in our conversation, he finally asked me, he said, is it really that big a deal? Is it that big a deal that I'm looking at pornography daily? What does it really matter? This just helps me until I can get married. And friends, that's the casual culture that we live in with sex, where we think it's really not that big a deal. It's not hurting anyone else. We can run blind to the whole industry that is so corrupt that abuses people and enslaves them. And so we can ignore that and we can think this hurts no one and it's not hurting me because sex is about my pleasure. And that's what my friend didn't understand is that in using pornography, what he was doing was objectifying women and saying sex was about serving himself. And he was training himself over the years that women existed for his pleasure. He was not giving himself to a biblical ethic of a sacrifice that this is what sex is ultimately about. And so, yes, it's a big deal. It's a big problem. And this is not to shame anyone who finds himself in the trap, but it's to bring to our attention how important it is to seek freedom and to seek life that God has something better for you. He has light for you. He would free you from this darkness that this was the former way of life, to be enslaved in all kinds of sexual immorality, because that is not just adultery. When Paul refers to sexual immorality, he's referring to any sexual practice outside of the covenant of marriage. And so, friends, this is how the love command gets applied in the Bible. Those are the guidelines that we have, the broad road that's in front of us. And the third and final thing that we find here about our new way of life as these freshly created creatures of God is that this new way of life is defined by thanksgiving. It's interesting in verse 4, 
When Paul speaks of not having filthy and foolish talk about sex because it is a sacred gift, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In verse 3, he says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as proper among saints. And Paul is here developing the idea that sexual immorality is tied to covetousness. And that the antidote to covetousness, the answer he gives, is that it is thanksgiving. Instead of idolatry, which he says also is covetousness, we are to be thankful before God. That that's the answer. Coveting is the desire to acquire something that God has not given us. It is an over-desire for something that God has not entrusted to our care. And we want that. And we lust after it. And we want, we want it inside of our possession. And Paul says the answer is thanksgiving. That is to receive God's good gifts with a thankful heart. Look down further in verse 18 where he returns to the theme of thanksgiving. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, he mentions a vice, drunkenness. And he says that rather than participating in this debauchery, that we are to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He speaks there of the corporate context of worship. And most likely the background on this was what was called the cult of Dionysius, which was in the city of Ephesus. And the cult of Dionysius was known for its sexual immorality and for its drunkenness. And that there were liturgies in which people participated in, in which they asked to be filled with the god Dionysius as they participated in those liturgies. And Paul is saying, rather than that, you be filled with the Spirit. Put those things away. And rather than being sexually covetous and covetous after pleasure like drunkenness, you give thanks to God. That is to be the thing that marks you as a Christian. Is thanking God always and everywhere for everything that He has given to you, that He has entrusted to your care, and being content in that. Friends, this is one of the primary marks of the Christian church. And ancient Christians, when they gathered together, actually called their gatherings the Eucharist, which was simply the Greek word for thanksgiving. And that's what's to mark us as well. And it's not just simply a worship service. It's a way of life. It's giving thanks to God for all that He gives us. And so, friends, our life is defined by thanksgiving. Our love is what motivates us. It is the pattern that's set before us. We are empowered by grace. It's a unique way of life that we Christians inhabit. And all of this is because God has revealed His will to us. 
His mysterious plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And what God wants to do is work out that big cosmic plan in your life and in my life right now today. That we know how to respond to Him. That we understand His claim upon us. Let's know how to answer Him. Let's know how to discern what the will of the Lord is. What it means to please Him. And walk in this way of love. Walk in this way of grace. Walk in this way of purity. And so we need His help. Let's ask Him for it. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy words that we receive. We hear Your command and we know that You give us grace to walk in the way of these commandments, and we need it. We thank You for forgiveness, that You have redeemed us out of darkness, and now that You call us light. And so help us to walk in the way of love. Help us to be encouraged by the empowerment of grace. May we turn away from all forms of darkness to give thanks to You, that thanksgiving would characterize our spirit and give us joy. Lord, be at work in us. Assure us of all of your goodness that is ours in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.